Well, uh, the Roman arch is one of the single most important architectural discoveries in, in all of history, right? Uh, the curve of the arch is an engineering marvel. It, it helps to distribute the weight. It pushes the weight down and it pushes the weight out and it helps to distribute the load evenly over everything that is uh, above it. And this arch creates a very strong passageway that you can cross under and it supports all of these very heavy structures that are above the arch. Now, the Romans did not invent the arch. Uh, the, Ro the, the Romans just adapted it. The, the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Greeks, they also used the arch, but, but the, the Romans are the ones who really exploited it, discovered what its true potential was. And so they used it as the foundation of these massive building projects uh, throughout Rome. Uh, and so we see it in places where there used to be like columns very close to each other uh, to support roofs and other heavy structures above. Uh, now there are these long spanned arches that can do the work of many columns uh, and supporting heavy roofs and stuff like that. So the arch was this new innovation, at least to the Romans, and they used it to support things like the aqueducts that brought water for miles and miles supported by arches uh, and Diocletian's palace. Uh, centered around the concept of the Roman arch. And of course, the most famous of all, uh, the Roman Colosseum, right? This whole thing is made out of the Roman arch. Uh, and it's so innovative and it's so useful that it's still being used today, right? You can see arches everywhere in modern construction because of its ability to bear the enormous weight of what is above it. And so I tell you this because our passage today reminds me a lot of the Roman arch. Uh, just as the Romans weren't the first to use the arch, Paul wasn't the first one to talk about this concept of, of the just living by faith or being justified by faith. Habakkuk used those words in the Old Testament. But these same words, being justified by faith, the just living by faith, took on new meaning uh, after the death of Christ as Paul used them to describe justification by faith in Christ alone. Justification by faith answers the question, how is it possible for a sinner to be saved? Because there is this immeasurable gulf between us down here, right, and God all the way up here. Uh, what is strong enough to possibly bridge a gap like that? What could ever be so strong to bear the weight of our sin and carry us to heaven? Well, the answer is the gospel of justification by faith. Justification by faith solves the problem of this impassable chasm between us and God by bridging that chasm just like an arch supports a bridge so that those who trust in Christ alone for salvation can cross from one side to the other. The bedrock of the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and that by faith in him we can have eternal life. The Judaizers then came in after Paul had left the Galatians, the Galatian region, and they said, yeah, faith, but you also have to add the law, and you have to add circumcision, and you have to add keeping of dietary restrictions, and keeping yourself separated from the Gentiles, and all of these other things. And Paul said, no, 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 that's not it. That's not it at all. It's Christ alone. Not Christ plus, Christ alone. Uh, Christ alone bears the weight of human sin. He's the only one strong enough to support it. So we need this passage because it shows us the most important thing. It shows us how to get to heaven. And Paul left no confusion. 
It's not by works. It's not by law. It's not by circumcision. It's not by dietary restrictions, good deeds, or any other human means. It's by Christ alone. So that's the doctrine that he's going to expound in uh, this passage. So up to this point in the letter, uh, Paul's focus has been on his authority, right? He's been trying to establish his authority over these Judaizers uh, who are trying to up, upend the gospel as Paul preached it in Galatia. Now, Paul had been in the Galatian regions, uh, region uh, during his first missionary journey, and he's sharing the good news, and he's establishing churches there. But after he left, these Judaizers came in, and they distorted the gospel by adding works to it. Keep the gospel, believe in Jesus, but do all this other stuff too. So imagine you're the Galatians. Like, we're hearing this from Paul, and now we're hearing this from uh, these Judaizers. Who should we listen to? Uh, who's right? Uh, and so... Paul spent the first two chapters of Galatians explaining why they should trust him, why he had better authority than anybody who is there preaching heresy to them now. And it's because, as we've gone over in the past few weeks, uh, first, his authority was received by Jesus directly. He received direct revelation from Jesus Christ, which, of course, the Judaizers could not claim. And secondly, uh, his authority was recognized by the apostles in Jerusalem, who gave him the right hand of fellowship and said, yeah, uh, we agree with the gospel that you're preaching. The Judaizers did not get the right hand of fellowship. And then finally, in the rebuke of Peter, uh, Paul demonstrated that he had uh, such authority, uh, that he was on such a par with Peter, that he had even the authority to rebuke the esteemed apostle Peter when he stopped eating with the Gentiles in Antioch, when these men from James came. So he's established his authority. Now he begins the beginning of him talking about the gospel, reminding these Galatians about uh, the doctrine of justification by faith that he preached when he was among them. So today we're going to talk about the doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, then we're going to talk about an objection to that doctrine that Paul anticipated. And then finally, how we're supposed to live in light of this doctrine of justification by faith. So let's read it first, verses 15 and 16. The doctrine of justification by faith. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So there it is. He lays it right out. Now, I want to deal with a preliminary question before we dive into this doctrine. And that is, <clears throat> Paul rebuked Peter in verse 14. Remember that when he said, uh, you're asking people to live like uh, Jews when you yourself, Peter, are living like a Gentile. So the preliminary question is, these verses, verses 15 to 21, are these part of the rebuke uh, that Paul gave to Peter? Or does this happen after? Uh, and he's just recounting the gospel now to the Galatians. Uh, you may have different versions of the Bible. Like if you have the NIV, the whole thing is in quotations. Or the NASB, the whole thing is in quotations from verses 14 to 21, indicating that, that all those verses are part of Paul's recitation of his rebuke to Peter. Uh, on the other hand, the Net Bible or the RSV Bible, they close the quote after verse 14. And so what that means is that these verses now, 15 to 21, no longer is he rebuking Peter. Now he's just dictating, reciting the gospel to the Galatians uh, back in Galatia. Now, 
Whichever way you feel about this, it doesn't change the content of the gospel message, but it does change the way you might interpret the rest of the passage. So uh, I lean toward the NIV translation, uh, including the entire quote, verses 14 to 21, as part of uh, the rebuke of Paul to Peter. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. Uh, The first reason I think so, which is just speculation, is that I would think that a rebuke of this nature would be more than just one sentence, which is all that verse 14 is. Peter, how can you ask the the Gentiles to live like Jews when you yourself live like a Gentile? That would be the end of the rebuke if it ended in verse 14. But again, I say that's just speculation. But if you look at verse 15, it says, Paul's argument was addressed to those who are Jews by birth, which of course would include Paul, that would include Peter, that would include Barnabas uh, and the Judaizers. So it seems to me like verses 15 to 21 are a continuation of the rebuke, kind of explaining uh, Peter's inconsistency between his behavior and his beliefs because uh, Paul is addressing the Jews. And the Galatians, on the other hand, they're mostly Gentiles, right? They're, They're mostly not Jews by birth. So to me, verse 15 seems more likely addressed to Peter and Barnabas and the Judaizers rather than the Galatians. It's like Paul is saying to them, Peter, you and I, we're Jews. We receive the gospel. We're saved by faith, just like the Gentiles. So again, as I say, whether these verses are part of the rebuke or not, uh, they're important for just how we're going to interpret the rest of the passage. I'm going to interpret it as though it's part of the rebuke. But uh, whether they are or not, we, we have to recognize that these are hinge verses in this epistle. He's established his authority just so we could get to this point, so he could give these verses to tell him what the gospel is, which he will do in these verses, uh, in verses 15 to 21. Uh, and they serve as a transition into chapters 3 and 4, which in those chapters, Paul is going to defend this gospel, this doctrine of justification by faith. So all this is leading up to defense of the gospel of uh, justification by faith, which we'll see over the next few weeks. Now, just to revisit the problem in Galatia for a minute. Remember, these Judaizers, uh, they came in after Paul. They see themselves as Christian missionaries, right? They think they're spreading the gospel, and they don't agree with the way Paul told the gospel to them. Now, the Judaizers, they didn't reject the gospel, right? That's not what they're doing. It's not like they come in and and came in and said, uh, you know, Jesus is not God. Jesus didn't die on the cross. He didn't rise from the dead. They're they're not saying that. Uh, Paul's problem with them is that they added to the gospel. And so the problem with the Judaizers is not anything about morality or character or anything like that. It's an indictment of the heresy that they're preaching in trying to keep salvation or trying to earn salvation by adding law and works to the gospel. So think of it this way. Think of the gospel as a very expensive bottle of wine, right? I mean, it's worth hundreds of dollars and there's not very much wine in a bottle of wine. Maybe it's four or six glasses, whatever it is. And as the owner of that bottle of wine, when you distributed it to guests, you might be tempted, would you, to, to water down the wine so there would be more of it? Well, I hope you wouldn't. Like, nobody would do that. It destroys the wine. The wine is of such fine quality, you'd never add water to it, right? That just wrecks the wine. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were destroying the gospel by adding to it. And so that's why uh, it was such a big problem. Now, uh, people pick up all kinds of heresy from popular culture, right? I mean, we see this all the time. Uh, one we hear all the time is that when we die, we become angels in heaven, right? Any of you heard that one? That, that's, that's not a new one, right? Uh, and I think uh, it's a wonderful life, right? That, that certainly has perpetuated the idea. 
Uh, I grew up on Bugs Bunny cartoons, right? One shoots the other in Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck or whatever, and then they shoot the one, they die, they become angels in heaven, right? With wings on their back playing a harp. So uh, this happens in a popular culture, uh, and it, it informs us uh, and, and manipulates the way we think about things. And it makes bad theology, right? And so that's why this has been perpetrated. God created angels and God created human beings, right? And we will never become angels. We don't get our wings when we die. We don't become angels. But many people believe this. And this is just an example of how pop culture influences theology. Uh, Allie had one of her seventh grade students this week write birthday cards to her mom, which I thought was a really nice thing. So she came home with a, a stack of birthday cards, and I read one of them, and one of them said uh, that they were celebrating the day that her angelic soul was born. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what that means. I think it's heresy, uh, because we don't have an angelic soul. Uh, but it's really nice. It was really nice that they were trying to be nice and write nice cards to Molly. But it's heresy, right? It's bad, bad theology uh, picked up from popular culture. And so that's the danger of bad theology. The Judaizers had bad theology. Their theology was all wrong. The law had been ingrained in them since they were kids, right, obeying the law of Moses. And it was very hard for them to abandon that law. And, you know, we can understand that. Uh, but they, they needed to grow in Christ because they were still insisting that keeping the law is necessary to salvation even after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so their bad theology is leading the Galatians astray. And so that's why uh, Paul would have repeated his rebuke to Peter in this letter to the Galatians. It was a perfect example for him to use to teach the Galatians about their bad theology that they were hearing from the Judaizers. And so he established his authority, and then he used the rebuke of Peter to explain uh, this gospel of justification by faith to the Galatians all over again. And you know, Paul loved Peter, but he was not afraid uh, to get in his face when he had to, right? And tell him, that's wrong, Peter, and what you're doing is wrong, uh, because the gospel was at stake. And Paul recognized that. So verse 15, uh, 16 is probably the most important verse of the letter now, getting into this concept of justification by faith. So what does it mean to be justified? Uh, the word justified comes from the Greek word dikao, uh, and it comes from the legal arena. And so it means to, to render a favorable verdict or to be released from uh, an obligation or a debt uh, which makes you free or makes you pure. So one example is, again, being released from a debt. If you owed a debt and somebody stamped paid in full on it, you're released from that debt even though you still owe it. You're considered justified. Or uh, when a judge declares you not guilty and sets you free, when in fact you are guilty, uh, you are seen as justified. You are seen as righteous, pure, and free. So Paul takes this term justification from the legal arena and uses it as a legal metaphor for this doctrine of justification by faith because the human predicament is that we are guilty of breaking God's law. Uh, and our holy God must judge sin. He has to judge sin because he is holy. And we deserve God's punishment, which for us means eternity in hell. But thank God, praise the Lord, and thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ, he came with a solution. He became a man. He lived a perfect sinless life. Uh, he took on the punishment that we deserved. Uh, and, and he took that punishment, the punishment that God demands for sin. Now God doesn't have to punish us because he's already laid the punishment of our sin on Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died, he assumed 
our guilt, right? Our guilt went on to Jesus Christ. He assumed that guilt and he took the punishment we deserved. And to avoid God's punishment and for God to declare us righteous is more valuable than winning the lottery, right? It's more valuable than any lottery ticket, no matter how big the jackpot. But how do we cash the ticket? How do we cash the ticket? By faith. We cash the lottery ticket by faith. God declares us righteous by faith. Well, what does that mean? That means that we have to recognize, we have to acknowledge that we have sinned and broken God's laws. And we have to acknowledge that we deserve his wrath. And we have to accept Jesus' gracious offer to pay for our sin debt on our behalf and then trust in him alone for salvation. When we do that, the Father looks at us uh, he sees his son, uh, and he declares us righteous before him. We receive God's not guilty verdict when we deserve his guilty verdict. That's an incredible, incredible gift, isn't it? But some people struggle with this. Some people really have a hard time with this. It seems too good to be true. There have to be strings attached, right? They see it as when you get a flyer in the mail, right? Come and have this amazing steak dinner. It's free. Or come and spend this incredible weekend in Barbados. It's free. Like, you know you're going to be sold a timeshare, right? I mean, there are no free lunches. Nothing is free except for the gospel. The gospel is free. It's free to us, but it cost the Father and it cost the Son immeasurably, right? Jesus had to die on the cross. God had to pour all the wrath uh, that he's had on all sin on his own son. So it was not free to him, but it is free to us. And this is where the Judaizers went wrong. The Judaizers said it's faith plus works plus law. And Paul says, no, it's by faith alone. And Paul was right, of course, because what is a gospel of works-based righteousness? What are we saying when we're trusting in our own accomplishments to get us to heaven? All we're doing is we're saying that we're trusting in our own accomplishments, and all it means is that all we're saying is we have faith in ourselves to get to heaven, right? Where our trust is in us and the good things that we have done. But if we could make ourselves righteous, if we could make ourselves holy, if we could make ourselves acceptable in God's sight, that means Jesus died for nothing for no reason, right? The reason he died and the reason that the gospel is justification by faith alone is because we can't make ourselves righteous by keeping the law. No one ever has been able to live the perfect sinless life that God demands except for Jesus. If you've ever played baseball, the first time you make an out, you can no longer bat 1,000, right? I mean, you can go 999 for 1,000, and your batting average is 999, right? It's never perfect. It's, it'll never be 1,000. It can never be 1,000 mathematically. Uh, just like that, committing one sin, even if, even if you only committed one sin in your entire life, you would not be perfect enough to go to heaven. Uh, that's the perfection that God demands. And uh, we all know as we sit here that we commit one sin a minute, not one sin in a lifetime, right? So uh, we have uh, a bad batting average, I would say. And so uh, we have to look at it that way when we think about God's grace. But justification by faith means that there is no amount of good works that we can do in order to get our way to heaven. And we're, we're relying by faith in the finished work of Christ and in God's mercy. We're relying by faith on him, the arch that supports 
all of uh, the, the sin and the baggage that we have, it's strong enough to bear that weight. And it will not collapse, but it will carry us clear across to God's safety. The gospel of justification by faith says, don't even try to cross on your own merit. You'll never make it. But the Judaizers were teaching that people could earn God's favor by keeping the law, and they were adding to the gospel, and they were destroying it by their addition. That's justification by works, adding to the gospel. It's like trying to jump across the chasm yourself, right? The bridge is there, but you're going to try and make the leap yourself. You're going to run fast as you can, jump across it, and then what's going to happen? It's going to be like the Wile E. Coyote cartoons, right? Straight down to the bottom and a poof. That's what's going to happen. It ends in death. It ends in death every time. That's why we need God's grace so desperately. So he's expounding this gospel, uh, this doctrine of justification by faith. Now, if you've read Paul's letters, you know uh, that Paul is frequently anticipating arguments that his opponents are going to make, right? And he answers those arguments before they can even make them. So that's what's going to happen in these next few verses. Now, this is nothing new to us. Like, uh, if you've had teenagers and they want to borrow your car, right? This is what they do. They say, Mom and Dad, I want to use your car. And I'm going to go with Jim and I'm going to go with John and I'll be home by midnight and I'll be very careful, right? Before you can even open up your mouth to, to start asking questions, this is what they do. Uh, so they, they're able to, to uh, win the argument before you even open your mouth. And that's what Paul is trying to do here in these next couple of verses. Uh, he's anticipating this objection to the doctrine of justification by faith. This is verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? That's the objection. Now here's Paul's answer. Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. All right, so it's a little complicated, these verses. Let's just think a minute about the, the, the scene in Antioch first. Now, assuming this is still part of Paul's rebuke of Peter, this would have happened publicly, right? Uh, you got Paul on one side of the room. You have the Judaizers. You have Peter. Even Barnabas is on the opposite side of the room. And he knows the objections are coming. So here's the argument that he's anticipating. This is what they're going to say. They're going to say, wait, Paul, wait, just hang on a second. Disregarding the law is very dangerous. God gave us the Ten Commandments for a reason. They're guardrails to keep us uh, away from depravity. And so following Christ and ignoring the law uh, seems like a license to sin. And uh, if, if you're encouraging people to sin, doesn't that make Christ a partner in sin? So that's the argument. And Paul gives the strongest response possible. Uh, absolutely not. May it never be. Uh, God forbid. Something like that, right? Uh, going back to legalism and the law is to build back up what Jesus destroyed by dying on the cross for our sins. Uh, and so uh, this is what Paul is arguing so strongly about. Now, imagine yourself trapped in a car underwater, right? You're trapped in a car, you're underwater. The water is pouring into the car. Uh, and you know that if you can't get out of this car in the next couple of minutes, that car is going to fill up and you're going to drown. But your seatbelt is stuck and you're frantically trying to get this seatbelt off of you as the water fills the car. And then all of a sudden, a diver comes down, dives into the water. He saw you fall in and he opens the car door, opens your seatbelt, gets you out of the car, and carries you up and safely to shore. Now, what are you going to do? You probably say thank you, right? You're not going to say, put me back in that car, right? You would never say that because you're going to die. There's death in that car. And that's what trying to follow the law 
to salvation is like. There's death in that, and there's only death in that. The law holds people in a never-ending cycle of guilt and failure and punishment. And we know that from our own lives because we get up, most of us, every morning saying, I'm, I'm not going to sin today. I'm going to have a good day. I'm going to live a holy life today. And, and before we even put our feet on the floor, we're thinking about some coworker who did us wrong and how we're going to get even, right? Uh, and, and again, the, the cycle of, of guilt and, and knowing that we deserve punishment and knowing that we failed, uh, it's just a never-ending cycle. And no matter how hard we try, we just can't keep this law perfectly. And so if we're trying to earn our salvation by keeping the law, well, that road ends in death. And the gospel frees us from that crazy cycle, right, of sin, failure, uh, death, uh, sacrifice, uh, only to start the process all over again. Why go back into the flooded car? We've been freed from the flooded car. It's returning to the very thing. When we're returning to the law, we're returning to the very thing that Jesus rescued us from. Now, the law may have condemned eating with the Gentiles, but the gospel doesn't, right? Everything is new. Everything is fresh and changed because of the gospel. Now, you'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right? So the doctrine of justification by faith doesn't destroy the law. It just puts the law in its proper place because the law was never intended to be a way of salvation, the law was meant to show people their sin and to judge them guilty of their sin. And so the, the futile effort that we make to try to keep the law, if that's what we're trying to do, it only shows us what lawbreakers we are. Now, Jesus' fulfillment of the law means that he kept the law perfectly for us since we couldn't keep it ourselves. He was the unblemished lamb that God demands uh, to sacrifice for the penalty of sin. And when God looks at believers, he sees his son. But freedom from the law does not give us license to live immoral lives. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what the Judaizers were arguing. Doesn't that make us partners or make Christ partners with us in our sin? Well, no, we don't have to keep the law unto salvation, but the law still reflects God's nature and his character. So we do uh, keep the law, the moral law, after we're saved to please him and because God's way is best. So Jesus is not a minister of sin. Uh, he's the sinless son of God. And our sin is not an indictment of him. It's an indictment of us, right? That we are incapable of keeping the law. Jesus is the minister of grace. He's got nothing to do with our sin. Uh, he's the one who saves us from our sin. So considering the doctrine of justification by faith and the fact that uh, we are guilty under the law, what should we do in response to this grace? What should be our response? Well, like Paul, I think that our goal ought to be to live a surrendered life. Uh, the effect of justification by faith to us ought to be a surrendered life. Verses 19 to 21. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Keeping the law was never a path to salvation. It only shows us what sinners we are, and under the law, the penalty for sin is death. Back in those days, pre-Christ, God graciously allowed an animal to be sacrificed in the place of the sinner. 
But after Christ came, Christ is the perfect and final sacrifice for sin. Now, Paul knew the law, right? And he thought he was a pretty good guy. I mean, if you read Philippians 3 and other passages like that, where Paul is bragging on his accomplishments and qualifications, he thought he was the cream of the crop. But after meeting Jesus, he realized, I am a sinner. I have denied my Lord. He knew that he couldn't measure up to God's perfect standard, and he knew that he needed a Savior. And by receiving Jesus as his Savior, he died to the law. That means the law's penalty no longer hung over him, and the law's power and persuasion no longer hung over him. If you're on a diet, you have to die to bacon and chocolate chip cookies, right? You have to die to it for as long as you possibly can. If you can do that, you might lose some weight. Paul died to the law that day. He just would not let it have power over him. He would not serve it and be its slave anymore. And that means he's free to live for God. And the same is true for all who receive Jesus as Savior. Crucified with Christ, right? This is Paul's uh, talking about his, his unity with Christ, his identification with Christ, and it's by faith. I was crucified, I was uh, crucified with Christ. I was died with Christ. I was buried with Christ. And so all who believe uh, in Jesus Christ are united to him, identified with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Paul didn't die literally, right? Uh, but that part of him that was enslaved to the law, that sinful self, died. So you have Saul, right? Saul pre-Acts 9. Saul the self-righteous. Uh, Saul the law-keeping Pharisee. He died. And, and in his place, Paul, the, the Christ-exalting, suffering missionary, was raised, resurrected with Christ. He was born that day, the day when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. Paul lived a surrendered life not through his own power, but through the power of Jesus in him. Paul surrendered his life to Jesus, and his life was hard, but it was glorious, and he never regretted it for a single day. And neither do we, brothers and sisters, who have followed Christ, no matter how hard life gets. It's always best to follow Christ. Verse 21 is Paul's summation of the argument. Is the gospel through the grace of God, or is it by works of the law? Well, if it was by keeping the works of the law, then Jesus died for nothing. He means that if we could earn his salvation, then Christ did not have to die. I mean, God would be a monster when you think about it. If he allowed his son to be killed so savagely on the cross, if there was another way of salvation. So assuming these verses were still part of Paul's rebuke of Peter, I think what Paul is saying uh, to Peter kind of subtly, he's saying, uh, I, Paul, I'm surrendered to Christ, but you, Peter, and the rest of you, you're not surrendered to Christ because you are still choosing law over grace. This was a stern, stern public rebuke of Paul to Peter and all who sided with him. Now on Peter's part, this was a lapse of judgment, right? Like not eating with the Gentiles anymore. That was a real lapse of judgment. Peter had been reinstated by Jesus. His sins had been forgiven. Uh, he's in good standing with God. Uh, but it teaches us something, right? We need, you and I, we need to be on guard ourselves. If Peter, the esteemed apostle Peter, who knew Christ, could slip into old sinful habits or be pressured by peer pressure, and so can we, right? I mean, we're not above Peter. We're not above the temptations that Peter uh, slipped into. So we have to be careful of this too, or we could slip into old sinful habits or succumb to peer pressure. 
So Paul reminded in this passage, a passage the Galatians of his authority, uh, most especially by rebuking Peter. Uh, but he also reminded the Galatians of the gospel, justification by faith, this pure gospel that, that Paul preached to them when he visited them a few years back. And so in these verses, Paul defined the gospel of justification by faith. And over the next several weeks, we're going to see Paul defend the gospel of justification by faith uh, to these Galatians. Uh, so we'll do that over the next few weeks. For now, we'll have some applications. So the first thing we need to ask ourselves is this. Have we been justified by faith? You know, it's easy to assume, as I stand up here every week and I see the same faces out there each week, it's easy for me to assume that we're all saved, right? And, and I don't want to make that assumption, which is why uh, somehow, some way, every week, I manage to say the gospel is, say it with me, Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's right. And by believing in him, we have eternal life. He is the arch that supports the bridge that carries us to safety. So if any of you are unsure about whether you have received Jesus Christ by faith and you understand the gospel, uh, let's have a talk. I would love to talk to you about that. It's a gift that you cannot earn, but that you must receive. So have we? Have we been justified by faith? I hope that the answer is that we can all say is yes. Assuming we have, here's a danger that we can fall into. Are we mixing performance with grace? We should always be checking our attitudes about the works that we do. Uh, there's definitely a place for good works, right? I'm not trying to discourage anybody from doing good works. We ought to do good works, but I'm only asking if we confuse the doing of good works to earn salvation with the doing of good works out of gratitude for our salvation, and that's a big difference. Uh, just as an example, this Wednesday is our monthly food drive. Now, every month uh, I come down here around uh, I don't know, quarter to 10 or so. I stop in Walmart, I buy some groceries, then I come over here, I collect all your foodstuffs, and then I drive them over to the food bank, uh, and I drop those things off. Now, is there a part of me that wants credit for that from God, right? Is there a part of me that thinks that because I have done this good deed that God owes me something, right? That's a real danger. Uh, is there a part of me that, that thinks that, you know, God's pretty lucky to have a guy like me on his team, right? Is there a part of me that thinks that? These are dangers of good works, right? Uh, so it's easy to fall into that mindset that, 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 that we're doing God a favor, right? Like he's, he's, really, he's really in good shape with us on his squad. So we might start to believe that God is indebted to us, and then we might start making demands on God, like trying to call in a chip. Like, God, remember that food drive I did the other day? You know, yo me here. Uh, we can do that, and this is the danger of mixing performance and grace. So we have to understand that, that salvation is a gift from God. There's nothing we can do to earn it, and there's nothing we need to do to keep it. And so when we receive this free gift, it's ours to keep forever. We can't lose this gift. But once we are saved, good works should follow, right? How could they not follow when we consider all that God has done for us, the wrath he has saved us from, the grace he's poured out on us? How could we not love and serve him? And that's the place of works. We live a surrendered life, a surrendered life to God, just like Paul did. And the work we do is by the power of the Holy Spirit that God gave to us when we believed in his son. And through his power, we can live a life that is pleasing to God. So let's be sure that we have this right, right? God doesn't owe us anything. Uh, God owes us nothing. And if we think he does, well, we've got it all backwards. We exist to serve God, 
not vice versa. Okay, so be careful. Are we mixing performance with grace? Next, do we walk in the liberty of grace? You know, we're not bound by the performance of rules and rituals, and any church that imposes rules and rituals uh, as a means to salvation is no better than these first uh, century Judaizers. Uh, Jesus has freed us from all that. We don't have to stay underwater in the flooding car facing certain death. We're free. We're free to live and we're free to love and worship Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit without fear of condemnation, even when we mess up. And we all mess up, right? We all mess up. But liberty is God's assurance to us that even though we mess up, uh, Jesus has paid the penalty and our slate is clean. We don't have to live with the, with the weight of guilt and shame and the feeling of failure. Christ died so we could be free from the penalty of sin, free from its guilt, free from its power and authority, and free to love by the power of the Holy Spirit. The law, the law has no power over us. The law of sin and death has no power over us. So we live life by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. And when we sin, we simply confess it, we thank Jesus that he paid for it, and we move on. So don't reject the liberty that God has given us. Just walk in that liberty. And then last, are we walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? How can you know if someone is a Christian? Well, only God knows the heart, right? Only God knows the heart. But one way others can get a pretty good idea if we're Christians is about how the way we live our lives. Are we walking according to the Spirit or are we walking according to the flesh in sin? Uh, so walking according to the Spirit means that we are seeking after God. We're trying to obey him with all our hearts rather than remaining enslaved to sin. Uh, when we sin, our, it hurts us. We want to stop it. We know that we're doing wrong. And we know that the world is watching, right? The world is watching us when we call ourselves Christians. So if we call ourselves Christian, we better act like a Christian. We better do things that are befitting of a Christian or our witness will be damaged. Uh, the church will be damaged. Christ's reputation will be damaged. We can't call ourselves Christians and then act otherwise. Uh, but if we love like Christ, like Christ did, Christ gave his life for the church, right? If we have that kind of self-sacrificial love, the world will notice and they'll want to know what we have that makes us different. And we can tell them, we have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. We have eternal life. We have joy beyond measure. And we can ask them, would you like to have that too? You can have it through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this message. I thank you for all of the Bible, but these verses in particular, Lord, are, are really the bedrock of what we believe, Lord. We're just so thankful <clears throat> for this doctrine of justification by faith because we are incapable of making it to heaven on our own. And uh, Lord, the only way we can get there is by faith. And we understand that it's a gift, faith is, that you've given to us. And Lord, we just walk in it. We walk in this faith, trusting you daily uh, for your salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he has paid the sin, on our, paid the sin penalty on our behalf, Lord. Uh, so that we don't have to worry about having to pay that. We are safe and secure in your arms for all eternity, Lord. And it's because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And we thank you for these things, Lord, in his precious name. Amen.